Thank you, Pastor John, and thank you again, Lord Sir Nation, for joining us on this online worship experience. My name is Pastor Bill. I have the privilege of being one of the two pastors here at Word Serve Church. As I mentioned in the opening, the idea of trials and temptations often come together. If we're having a trying time, then we can be tempted to take shortcuts, or we can say, well, you know, you only live once, so I'm just going to go for whatever I want to do. Um, we, we tend to abandon some principles during trying times. But it also works the other way. Sometimes when we fall into temptation, our temptations cause us to have trials. So these two are linked together in some really interesting ways. And so what we want to do is, uh, for the next three weeks, we're going to explore the idea of trials and temptations. Because if you're living in the current coronavirus times, you are probably experiencing some trying times from various reasons. The times may be trying because of uh, physical. You may be affected physically by COVID-19. Uh, times may be affected by the economy. The, the, this whole process has wreaked havoc with our economy, with our income, with our budgets. All those kinds of things can lead to a lot of stress economically. And anytime there's stress in the world or anything else that we're doing, there can also be stress in our relationships, whether that's parenting or uh, husband and wife, or even friends as we interact with one another. There are a lot of trials and temptations, especially in the area that we're living in right now. So let me show you where we're going for the next three weeks as we explore this idea of trials and temptations. First of all, let me assure you that uh, we are not the first to encounter this. The idea of trials and temptations have hit every major character in the Bible. Some have done well, some have not. But I'm going to cut to the chase. I'm going to help us to focus on one who not only did trials and temptations well, but actually mastered and conquered them. I'm talking about none other than Jesus Christ himself. Over the next three weeks, here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at Jesus Christ's temptations in the desert. They really revolve around three basic things. This week, we're talking about bread, some very physical, uh, visceral need. Next week, we'll be talking about the safety, our need for safety. The week following that, we'll be talking about how our need for status can in and of itself become a trial or a temptation. So as we go forward, uh, we want to talk about this idea of uh, trials and temptations um, from a couple of standpoints. I, if we're honest, we're probably asking this question. Why should there even be trials and temptations? I mean, if I have decided to follow Christ, shouldn't my life be easier? And if God is a loving God, then why would he allow trials and temptations in my life? Well, we're going to explore this question a little bit, maybe from some avenues that you haven't thought about before. But let me ask one key question going forward. Is there a difference between just believing in Christ and believing and attempting to follow Christ? I think there is a difference. I think many of us uh, will believe in Christ when we are in trouble. Many of us will believe in Christ because we think there's going to be a reward at the end, whether that's eternal life or a life without trouble. But the sad fact is that trials and temptations are real. And when we attempt to not only believe in Christ, but to follow Christ, I would argue that some of those trials and temptations will become even stronger. That totally doesn't make sense. I know it's counterintuitive, but stick with me. And let's see if we can figure out why that might be, that when we not just believe in Christ, but we decide to follow Christ, that we can have even more of a hard time. 
Now, here's a spoiler alert right off the get-go. If Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, could not get away from trials and temptations, why would we think that we're any different? There is no exempt clause. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back and let's look at Scripture. Let's look at Jesus himself as we explore Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Jesus has been driven into the wilderness, led there by the Holy Spirit. He has been fasting for 40 days. And who should come along him but none other than the adversary himself, Satan. And Satan knows by this point he's got to be hungry. And so he issues a challenge. Let's look at that in Matthew 4, chapter, uh, verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. These are the words of God, and they are for the people of God. And for them, we are grateful. One of the things that always fascinates me about Scripture is the ability to see Scripture in context. Now, this is a pretty straightforward story. There's Jesus, alone in the wilderness, tempted by the devil. And he goes for the very basics. He knows he's got to be hungry and tired. So, hey, if you're the Son of God, turn that stone into bread. But what happens just before and after this is fascinating to me. And this is why I always say, don't just read Scripture. Read Scripture in circles, meaning as I read a passage, I'll read a little bit after the passage. And then I'll come back and I'll read a little bit before the passage. And then a little more after. And then a little more before all designed to give me the context in which this is happening. And when I do that with this passage, something really interesting happens. This passage starts off with, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted. So what happened just before this? Was Jesus being punished? Did Jesus mess up? Now, if you go back to Matthew and you look right before this, what happened was, this was Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. This is one of the highest points of his life so far. Jesus has been pretty nondescript. He hasn't really opened up into his ministry yet. And what happens to start that ministry? John the Baptist baptizes him in the River Jordan. During that baptism, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and God's audible voice comes out and says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. I can't think of a higher high than to have the recognition of Father, uh, God Almighty, in front of all your friends. And what happens next? Then he's led into the desert by himself to be tempted by Satan. What possible reason could God have to put next on his to-do list, go into the desert and be tempted? Now, while, by the way, you're fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. What possible good could come from that? But one of the things that I learn as I look at this is oftentimes our greatest temptations follow our greatest successes. In other words, that might be the time when we are most vulnerable. When you have that great success, when you feel like you, you and God are one, you're on the same page, and then the next thing you know, something has snuck in because we let our guards down, I think. So this is one of the first key takeaways I take from today is Oftentimes, our greatest temptations follow our greatest successes. So if we're smart, we'll be on the lookout for that. We won't get caught unaware. 
but there's more. As I explore this question of why would God allow this, especially his own son, who he just said, in whom I am well pleased, why is he allowing this temptation to go on? Well, I think there's uh, something about this idea of who am I willing to follow? God knows that Jesus' role on earth is not just so that we'll believe in him. That's very important, but it's more than that. We don't just believe in Jesus. We want to follow Jesus. Having said that, let me ask you this. Who are you more willing to follow? Someone who is just all endorsement or someone who is about experience and not just experience, but successful experience? See, if you look at the context of Jesus' life up until this point, he's all endorsement. He's had the Holy Spirit descend on him. He's had his father say, well, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, but what has he done yet? What has he experienced and conquered yet? Not really anything that I would be willing to follow him to the death for. I need a leader who has experienced, not just experienced, but successfully experienced and conquered the things that I'm going to be facing. If God can send his son and test him in all these different areas that we're going to study over these next couple of weeks together, then I know that 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 is one that cannot be taken away from the mission. And if I know Jesus' mission, I know that his mission is to come and save you and me. And I have more confidence in following him, no matter where he leads, because he's been there and he's conquered there. That gives me more confidence. I don't want a leader that's all endorsement. I want a leader that's experience, successful experience. So if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to have trials and temptations, one of the best things that I think we can do is to learn and understand our enemy. If we know our enemy, we know how he's going to attack, then we can better prepare ourselves so that when trials and temptations come, we are ready. Notice I say when trials and temptations come. It's not if, it's when. So in knowing our enemy, here's the first thing that I observe. Now, if you're in education or you're in psychology, you will probably recognize this. This is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Maslow was a psychologist that came up with this idea that if you, if you look at the very top of this pyramid, it says self-actualization. In Maslow's terms, it means that's the desire to become the most that one can be. If I put that into Christian terms, that's becoming who God made me to be. That's the ultimate. And in the process of becoming who God made me to be, I should look more like Christ. That's the tip of the pyramid. But read your way down and see what it takes to actually arrive at this place. Before I can be who I'm made to be, I also have to experience esteem. I have to have uh, status, recognition, uh, self-esteem, respect, strength, and freedom, all these things. And before I can experience that, I have to have love and belonging, which makes me wonder if, why, you know, if you've ever wondered why God is so big on loving God with all heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving neighbors yourself, I bet he informed Maslow on this hierarchy because that's kind of a, a core value, the friendship, the intimacy, a sense of connection. If we don't feel connected to God, if we don't feel connected to Christ, then we're going to be stunted in our growth on our way to become more like him and to become who God made us to be. Reading on down the list, safety needs, just basics, personal security, employment, resources, health, property. Can you understand then, in a time like COVID-19, this is an area that is under attack right now. 
maybe it's deliberate, maybe it's not, but it's certainly going to be an obstacle in our way, in our, on our way to become who Christ made us to be. And then finally, at the bottom of the list, physiological needs. These, these are as basic as you can get. You've got to have air. You've got to have wa uh, water. You've got to have food, all these other things. Why do I spend the time to share with you some psychologists' hierarchy of needs? Because this is going to help us understand our enemy. Look at where Satan is attacking Jesus, his first opening salvo. If, if, you, are designed, uh, if you designed an attack to take down an enemy, you would go to your, your number one first off, right? You're not, you're not trying things out. You're going to go for the one, the, the, the kill right up front. And, and what does Satan choose to address first? He addresses food. If you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. He's attacking the very base of this pyramid because if he can do that, then he knows that Jesus will never experience safety. Jesus will never experience love and belonging, the sense of connection. Jesus will never experience strength and freedom that God gives. And Jesus will never become who Jesus was begotten to be. Now, Jesus is the son of living God. Granted, he has some advantage on us, but substitute your name everywhere I just said Jesus. If the enemy can make Bill worry about food, water, and, and clothing, then Bill will never feel safe. And if Bill never feels safe, Bill will never experience a sense of connection and intimacy and love and belonging. And if he, Bill never experiences that, then he will never experience the strength and freedom that God gives. And if he can't experience that, Bill will never become what he was made to be. And he will never look as much as he could like Christ. That's Satan's main tactic. Go for the base of the pyramid. Destroy everything. And if you look at the world today, you can see there are a lot of things in these very base levels that are under attack. We've got to ask ourselves how do we overcome them. And I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. But basically, let's continue to, to know our enemy. The, the very first thing that he's going to do is attack at the base level. But right after that, he also attacks when we're the most vulnerable. And like I said before, sometimes that's usually right after a, a big success. We let our guard down. I use uh, the example of a National Geographic documentary to explain this. If you think about it, if you've ever watched a National Geographic documentary on the hunters of the plains of Africa, they never attack the herd. They never attack the pack. They never attack the strong and alert one. They always wait for that one that drifts out away that is sick or young or some, in a, some other way vulnerable. That's who they go after. And that's when they go after. Our enemy is no different. They're going to wait until you're separated from the pack. You're worn down. You're tired. You're not alert. You're not aware. That's when our enemy will attack. Knowing that, then we can better prepare ourselves. We can expect it. The other thing I notice about Satan is that he actually uses scripture. If you notice, uh, and you'll notice over the next two weeks that we spend together, every time Satan tempts Jesus, he tempts him using scripture. Isn't that fascinating? Here's the scary thing. Satan knows scripture. In fact, Satan probably knows scripture better than you and I do. That should worry us. But here's the thing that worries me the most. Not only does Satan know scripture forward and backwards, Satan also knows where he can start with truth and give it just enough twist 
where it sounds right. It, I should believe that. But somewhere in the twisting, he takes me off course. That's his most deadly weapon, the grain of truth with the hint of a lie that you, you'll miss if we're not careful. And that hint of a miss is just enough to knock us off course. And if we continue, we'll find ourselves astray. That's how our enemy operates. Knowing that, we can better prepare ourselves. I saw this quote I thought I would share with you. Uh, it speaks to our ability to know scripture, but more so our ability to live it. Here's the quote, and I'm sorry, I can't remember who said it. Don't be impressed by people who can quote scripture. Be impressed by people who can live scripture. Isn't that the essence of Jesus Christ himself? Not only did he know scripture backward and forward, he was the word, but he actually came down and lived the word. He not only lived the letter of the law, he lived the spirit of the law at the same time. That's the essence of Christ. That's the opposite of the enemy. There is no falsehood. There is no lie. There is no twist that takes us off course. There is simply truth. Truth that leads us on the straight and narrow. Truth and, and, and uh, grace and forgiveness that, that keeps us on the path. Knowing our enemy will help us be better prepared. So here's the next thing then that we have to do. We have to prepare a battle plan. Now, this is a, a picture of modern-day battle planning. You know, it looks a little different than it did back in the day. We have some computers. We have some phones. We have some uh, PowerPoint. You, you cannot fight a war these days without PowerPoint. And you have a tent that it probably has air conditioning in it because of all the electronics would overheat if it didn't. So uh, this is modern battle planning. Now, let me assure you that uh, war is still war, and it's ugly on the outside, and it's just as stressful as it's ever been. But... This is the mindset that we need to take as we prepare to take on this enemy because he will come. It's not a question of if we will be under attack. We will. So how do we prepare? A couple of ideas I want to, to talk about. There are really two ways that we can prepare. One is a reaction drill. If we know we're going to be attacked and we find ourselves under attack, how do we react? One of the things I want to encourage you, if you recognize that you're under a spiritual attack or a temptation or a trial, do not fight alone. That's when you're most vulnerable, when you're away from the herd. Get back to the herd or have the herd come to you and surround you so that you're less vulnerable. That's the National Geographic model. Now, not only do we not fight alone, don't fight with amateurs. Pick your friends well. Pick those who will support you in the times of stress and trouble and trial and temptation well. If I were to give you a choice and I said, here's your two options. You're going to go into a physical confrontation. It's going to go down. You have two choices. On the one hand, you could pick SEAL Team 6. On the other hand, you could pick some dude that is uh, really good at a video game and, and can blow all kinds of things up on the video game, but has never actually gotten up out of his chair. Which one are you going to pick? I'm going for SEAL Team 6. Now, what does that look like in the Christian context? Well, uh, people who uh, take this seriously, who actually train, for spiritual warfare, who learn scripture in context, who are there for you, not of their own strength, but of the strength that Christ gives. Let's take a look at what that looks like from another perspective. We don't just have to react when we're under attack. We can actually be proactive. And this is what I encourage for you, Word Serve Nation. Don't wait for the enemy to come to you. Prepare yourself. And better yet, down the road, let's talk about how we go after the enemy. 
because I'm kind of tired of playing defense. I don't know about you. Maybe it's time for some offense, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Being proactive. What does that look like when we know we're going to be attacked? Know when you're vulnerable. Know that right after that success, that's the time that you're going to be vulnerable. Know that when you're tired and weak and worn down and your, your give a care factor is way down, you're probably vulnerable to trial or temptation. Know that when one of those appears, the other will follow. If you're under a trial, there will be temptations. If you're being tempted and it's sucking you down that road, there will be trials. Know that. And why do you know that? So that you can surround yourself ahead of time, or at least at the very early stages of an attack. Surround yourself with those professionals. At WordServe, we call that a community group or, or a band of brothers or sisters, whatever you want to call it. Have those people in your corner. Have them on your speed dial so that you can get a hold of them and do so at the earliest opportunity before it happens. Know when you're vulnerable. Be proactive in this. Don't wait for the enemy to find you. And then finally, and this is another area where community groups and study groups and Bible studies and all that thing, they're great. Learn scripture in context. Knowing that Satan's main weapon as he uses scripture is to take it out of context. Learn what it looks like in context so you can recognize that was truth, but that's where the twist happened. This is where I stopped listening. I'm going to listen to God because that's where the truth, the straight and narrow lies. I may or may not have successfully answered your questions as to why trials and temptations happen. If I haven't, I encourage you to stay tuned, especially over the next few weeks. But let me take a crack at a couple of reasons why people question this. I should be exempt from trials and temptations. If I believe in Christ, my life should be easier and I should be exempt. This is actually a pretty easy one to answer. And, and we've already answered it, in fact. If Jesus Christ, the living Son of God, is not exempt from trials and temptations, what makes us think that we should be exempt? There must be a reason. There must be something that we could gain from that. So that's an easy one. I should be exempt? No, actually you shouldn't. Jesus himself in scripture says that you're going to have trouble in this world if you believe and follow me. Uh, he says, he tells us right up front, the world is going to hate you because it first hated me. See, now that's a man I can follow because he tells the truth. He's not trying to sugarcoat anything. He's not trying to walk me down candy cane lane and, and just follow him blindly. He's telling me this is going to be tough. Brace yourself, man or woman. You're not going to be exempt. That's an easy one to answer. Here's another one that might be a little more subconscious and might kind of have us experience some fear and, and some guilt, maybe some shame. What if I fail? What if I get tested and I totally bomb? What if I declare to the world that I'm a Christ follower and then I make Christ look bad? I screw up. What if I pledge to be there for that brother and sister, and in their moment of greatest need, I falter, and I'm not there for them? What happens then? Well, what happens then is there's this secret weapon that God has. It's called forgiveness. It's called reconciliation. So that even if we, quote, fail, God has the power to bring us back to lift us up, to make us stronger, to help us learn, to restore us to the right relationship that he calls us to so that 
we can be what he made us to be. Not just me as an individual, but we, word serve nation, can be what we are made to be. What if it's not about pass or fail when it comes to tests? What if it's about learning and growing? What if, in the Christian sense, it's about this whole process molds us, shapes us, and stretches us to look more like Christ? Why? Because we've survived trials and temptations. And even if we have, quote, failed, we can still learn and we can still grow. Not only that, but I begin to experience community in a new way. And these, these community groups is what we call it WordServe, but I experience community with the body of Christ in a new way. If I fail a brother or sister and I'm not there for them when they need it the most, then I have a better understanding when the tables are turned. When someone has said, I will be there for you, and right when you need them, they're not there, you get it because you've been there. You also get, though, that beyond that, there is forgiveness and there's reconciliation. Don't leave that brother or sister hanging. Don't let them spiral down in that sense of guilt and shame, like, oh, I fail, I can never come back from this. I've made God look bad. I've abandoned my brothers and sisters. Don't let that happen. Offer them the same forgiveness and reconciliation and grace that God offers us. Don't let the devil tell you that you can never bounce back from that. I don't want to bounce back. I want to go forward. That's what I'd rather do. And that's what's possible with forgiveness, with reconciliation, as we come back to the truth. Don't worry about failing. Think about learning, growing, growing into the image of Christ himself. Ultimately, that's, I think, the goal. That as we experience trials and temptations, we're not doing anything that Jesus Christ himself hasn't already done. And we're not doing it alone. This is the same Christ who, as he departed and gave the Great Commission, said, Do not fear, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So recognize this, Lord Serve Nation, that no matter what you're facing, no matter what trial or temptation you're up against, there is one who is walking beside you, who yearns to speak truth and grace and forgiveness and reconciliation into your ear, who yearns to unravel the twist that the enemy puts in the word and to, to make it pure and simple and clear, who yearns for us to live in community, to support one another, so that as we love one another, the world will know that Jesus is who he said he was. That's the God that I follow. That's the Jesus that I know. That's the Jesus who suffered trials and temptations and yet made it through it perfectly, giving me not just an example, but giving me hope along the way. What if one of the reasons for trials and temptations is so that we can become more Christ-like? I mean, think about it. What else stretches us so much that we conform to the image of Christ? but only if we don't let the twist misshape us in the stretching. As we're stretched, we have to hang on to the truth so that we will become more like Christ, so that we will become more of who we were made to be, fearfully and wonderfully as we were made. And I think if we can look more like Christ, and I think if trials and temptations can help us do that, then at the end of the day, the Father will be honored and the world will see exactly who he is through us. 
I can't think of a happier ending to a trial or a temptation. I can't think of a greater opportunity. And I can't think of a greater community that I would rather experience this with than you, Word Serve Nation, by the power of the Spirit and in the image of Christ. Will you pray with me, please? God, we thank, for, thank you for the example of your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we don't necessarily thank you all the time for trials and temptations, but maybe we should. God, I don't wish the pain and suffering on anyone, but at the same time as we experience them, will you help us to understand that in each of these trials and temptations, there is an opportunity to become more uh, like your son, Jesus Christ. God, we can't do that of our own accord, so pour out your Holy Spirit. Shape us with truth. Help us to resist the twisting that the enemy will attempt. And help us to keep our eyes focused on you as we go forward, not only as individuals and in all that we were made to be, but as a community, as we were all made to be together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.